stand with me, please, as Noah comes this morning to read to us from John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all these things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord from John 13, verses 1 through 17. Amen. Thanks, you may be seated. That was a long passage that I had Noah read this morning, but I felt that the full reading of this passage needed to be heard all at once if we were really to to grasp it and hear it all together and, and take this context and see not only what Jesus taught and modeled, but what it means for us and how Jesus told all of us, you will be blessed now that you understand these things if you do them. When I think about our culture, specifically Western culture, not just in the United States, but but the Western world altogether, humility is seen as a virtue. Now, there are some exceptions. For some reason, we do make a few exceptions in our culture for somebody who doesn't display humility, and we sort of look the other way. But by and large, most people in the Western world view things like bragging, taking all the credit, constantly praising oneself, and outright narcissism to be objectionable. We don't like it. But it was not that way in the ancient world. Most ancient cultures were honor and shame cultures. Therefore, if a person lived in humble circumstances or a person displayed humility, it was viewed as inferior. And in particular, if a person lived humbly, it was seen as the will of the gods. And so in the ancient world, you see kings and Caesars always bragging about how great they were, and bragging about their conquests. In the ancient world, the rich lorded their wealth over the poor. 
because to be humble was not virtuous. To be humble was to be inferior. So what changed? Well, many historians argued that what changed was the example and teaching of Jesus. That as Christianity spread all around ancient Mesopotamia, but then ultimately into Europe, and centuries later it came to us, that it's the Judeo-Christian worldview that made humility virtuous, starting right here with Jesus. I love this quote from John Dixon. He wrote a book called Humilitas, which is the Latin word for humility. He said, today it doesn't matter what your religious views are if you live in the West. Whether you're a Christian, an atheist, or a Jedi Knight, you view honor-seeking as morally questionable and lowering yourself for the good of others as ethically beautiful. Jesus made humility virtuous. Jesus, through his teaching, but also through his actions and ultimately through his death, made humility ethically beautiful. Here in John 13, in John's version of the Last Supper, we see Jesus display a radical act of humility and service. Now, all four Gospels tell a story, have an account of the Last Supper. In Matthew and Mark, we see at the Last Supper, Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. When we come to our own table... And we observe through the bread and the cup what Jesus modeled for us and said, from now on, do this in remembrance of me. John doesn't record that part. In Luke's gospel at the Last Supper, the disciples get into an argument about who was the greatest. And then Jesus begins to prepare them for what's going to happen during his arrest. John doesn't talk about that. But neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke tell us about this act of service. And it's as if John, whose gospel was written later, who we've said all throughout this series, he wrote these stories, he told us these particular things in this order so that we would believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's as if John, coming to the end, saying, oh my goodness, neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke told you about perhaps the most memorable thing that Jesus did at that meal. This incredible act of service as the Lord himself washed the feet of his disciples. And so it's to John's version of the Lord's Supper and the Last Supper that we turn. And we begin with verse 1 where Jesus forever intertwined love and service in the Christian life. So John is clarifying the timing for us here. Again, we know this is the Last Supper, but John's gospel to this point really wasn't very chronological. And so this last half of the book, which really, again, as we've said, slows time down and focuses on that last week that Jesus spent with his disciples before he went to the cross. He's giving us the timing here. He's helping us understand, okay, from this point forward, as things happened in order, this was Thursday night. This was the evening right before the Passover festival began, which also coincided with the Sabbath. This is what we call Maundy Thursday, when we get into Holy Week. We're a little bit ahead of that, but again, John slows us down here, so we're going to cover this last week in several weeks. 
This is Maundy Thursday. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And this is the last meal Jesus will have with his disciples before his death. Having loved his own who were in the world, John says, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, this was the time, the moment, where things would begin to lead him towards the place where he would no longer be physically in the world. Having loved his disciples as his own, he now loved them to the end. Now, depending on what translation you're looking at, that last phrase is sort of ambiguous. In Greek, it's two words, eis telos. And it literally means all the way to the end. Some will translate this as to the fullest extent, to the full measure. I think what John is trying to tell us here is that here Jesus showed them the full depth of his enduring love. And he did so not through words and not through teaching, but here in the beginning of the passage he did it by an act of service. It's a reminder that when it comes to love, words are important. And feelings matter. And as we, we express love to someone, touch really is also an essential part, but nothing speaks louder than action when it comes to love. And yet the context, as John tells us, and, and this is building, it's so important to see the way John builds to the point where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He says that Judas, verse 2, was not just conspiring with the chief priests and the Pharisees, but he was conspiring with the devil himself, who had put it in his heart that he was going to betray Jesus. And yet in the face of this great evil, John reminds us of Jesus' power and Jesus' identity. He says in terms of his power, the Father had put all things under his power, underneath the power the control, the strength of the Son, the Lord Himself. In terms of His identity, John says, He came from God and He was returning to God. So whatever Judas had planned, whatever he and the devil were cooking up together, whatever the chief priests and the Pharisees were working on behind the scenes, none of it could succeed because of Jesus' power and Jesus' identity. He remains above all of this darkness. All things are in His hands. John has demonstrated that. Whether heaven and earth, sky, land and sea, the wind, the storms, life and death, Jesus is in control. And so quite intentionally here, John stacks the deck in verses 1 through 3. He builds this case for Jesus' lordship, His power, and his identity, all of these words are tied together in the Greek language so that when we get to verse 4, we would see just how radical Christ's humility and act of service truly are. Because Jesus knew what the devil had prompted Judas to do. Because Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Because Jesus had come from God and was returning to God, he did what happened next. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist, 
And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When we think about washing feet in the ancient world, this was an act of a servant. And as we'll see in a moment, what Jesus did was altogether different, even than the act of a normal servant. But if you went into a prominent home, it was a part of the hospitality, it was a provision, something that the host made sure was available for every guest, that someone would wash your feet, especially before you reclined at the table for a meal. Because in that act of reclining, not pulling out chairs and sitting down, but literally laying next to each other and reclining at the table, it was very likely that your feet would be in someone's face. So this act of service was much appreciated, as you can imagine. Especially in a world with open-toed shoes and dirt roads that often had animal waste on them. A world where there were many skin diseases of the foot and there was no Dr. Scholes. There were no medicated pads, no orthopedic shoes. The feet are often communicated throughout the Old and New Testaments as dirty and vile impure, unclean. We can understand why. And yet what Jesus does here is not the normal servant act. Because this was into the meal. If this was a prominent home, then we can imagine that the feet have already been washed. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But in this case, Jesus is not performing the act of the regular servant. He is, again, as John has stacked the deck to help us understand who Jesus knew he was. This was an intentional act of radical humility and service to show his disciples, to model for them that in the Christian life, love and service are intertwined. Here's how Paul wrote about this later. He said, in your own Christian life, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be used for his own advantage. I mean, it's as if Paul is saying here in Philippians 2 exactly what John presented. That Jesus was in his very nature God, just as John described it, and yet he modeled service. He put the needs of others above himself. Unless we think this is only about this one act of washing the feet, Paul continues, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus didn't just take the the role of a servant by washing his feet in John 13. He took the role of a servant by lowering himself and becoming like us. This, to me, in Scripture, is the ultimate act of empathy. Sympathy is God feeling sorry for us and, and wanting to help. Empathy is God identifying with us and saying, I am going to take their place. I'm going to get behind their eyes. I'm going to get inside their skin. And I am going to become like them so that I might serve them. 
and Paul finishes this out. It wasn't just the incarnation in which Christ took our place. But being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on the cross. Christ's radical act of humbling himself and serving humanity went all the way through his sacrificial death on the cross. This is the ultimate picture of humility and service. The Lord humbling himself on our behalf. I love this quote from James M. Hamilton. He says, We who live in the modern world would be loath to leave our luxuries and return to the standard of life in the ancient world. Walking on those dirt roads, no comfortable shoes, all the dirt and squalor. And yet Jesus left heavenly luxury for pre-modern squalor. Jesus left the aroma of heaven for the stench of unwashed masses. Loving his people enough to take their feet into his own hands and to wash them clean. Jesus forever intertwined love and service in the Christian life. But along with service, Jesus also modeled surrender. Surrender to the Father's plan. Surrender to the Father's will. As we move into the middle part of this text, until we surrender to Christ, we have no part with Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest. As I was thinking through how to talk about this next part of the text, the discussion that, that Jesus and Peter have with one another, I thought about titling this section, Peter, shh, shush, just be quiet. Because this is another case where Peter starts dialogue, he starts asking questions, he starts talking, and it's awkward. He keeps putting his foot, no pun intended, deeper into his mouth. And you want to just say, Peter, just, just be quiet, just listen. Peter begins the dialogue, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, are you really going to do this for me? And then he says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And then when Jesus explains what's happening, Peter says, well then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter, just, just be quiet for a minute. But Jesus, in his responses, and the reason I separate these out is because Jesus expresses some really important truths in his simple responses to Peter's impulsive thoughts and questions. Jesus says, you don't realize now what I'm doing. But later you will understand. What, what a powerful statement on its own. Not only to the disciples in the moment when, when Peter and, and the others are experiencing this radical act of humility and service, but just even I think in general that Jesus could say this and did say this to his first followers so often. I know you guys don't get it. They, they ask sometimes what seem like obvious questions. I know right now it doesn't all make sense, but someday, later on, though you don't now realize what I am doing, you will understand. There, there is so much application to that into every area of our lives. Because how often do, 
do we just need to simply hear Jesus say about our current circumstances, our current struggles, the things that we wish we could change about the past, the things that we are anxious about in the future, if we could just hear Christ Jesus say, as he said to his first disciples, hear him say to his disciples now, though you don't fully realize what I'm doing, later on you will understand. And then he says, again, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. If the Son doesn't make you clean, Peter, other disciples, then you will not truly be clean. Because there is a, a washing, a purification, a forgiveness, a covenantal kind of love that only Jesus Christ can give us. And then Jesus said, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And he says to them, and you are clean. That teaching, again, that understanding, if, if we have not surrendered to Christ, we have no part in him. If we've not been made clean by him, then we've not truly been made clean. Is there a difference between being in Christ and being with Christ? Yes. Everyone who exists in one way or another is in Christ. We, we are all underneath His authority and His control. Even those who outright deny His existence or blaspheme His name are still living underneath His authority. To be in Christ also means to experience salvation. But the role of discipleship takes the step further to being with Christ, to walking with Christ. And it is altogether possible to be in Christ, to belong to Him, to have experienced His salvation, and yet to turn our backs, or to lag behind, or to ignore His presence in our lives, and to say, right now, I am not clearly walking with Christ. And Jesus says to Peter, if you want to just not just be in me, but be with me, you must allow me to make you clean. There's that purification, there's that act of cleansing that happens, at our moment of salvation, to be sure. When we, when we confess our sin, when we ask Christ for forgiveness for the first time, when we say to Him, I'm not only going to receive that forgiveness, but I'm going to repent, I'm going to turn away from my sin, and I'm going to commit my entire life to You, yes, there is that purification. There is that cleansing of our sins. But then there are times, for most if not all of us in our Christian life, where we have to return and we have to say, Lord, there is some impurity back in my heart and life. And I need to be cleansed. It's not another salvation. It's not redoing the first part, but it's that next part as a disciple to say, Lord, I need to be washed clean. There's a difference between being in Christ and with Christ. And Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You're clean but not every one of you. Again, until we surrender to Christ, we have no part with Christ. Who was not clean? Jesus said this in verse 11, because he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said not everyone was clean, because he knew what the devil himself had put in the heart of Judas. And yet don't miss that Jesus washed Judas's feet as well. In this moment of radical humility 
and a radical act of service, Jesus washed the feet of his betrayers. Which I think ought to lead all of us to ask a hard but a very honest question. If we were in his place, would we also have washed Judas' feet? We, we are living in a culture and a time where the mentality, even among Christians, is let's strike them before they strike us. Let's take the, the offensive strategy and let's put our enemies in their place. Even some Christian leaders who have mocked Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek and said this is not an age for turning the other cheek. When is there not an age to live and act as Jesus commanded? But I'm not sure if I was at that table knowing what Judas had in his heart that without a miraculous act of God forcing my hand that I would have had the desire to wash his feet. But Jesus did this because as we come to the end the ultimate Christian example of love and service is Christ himself. Now I realize that's an obvious statement. The, the highest example of Christian anything is Christ himself. But the truth is we often look to much lesser examples. We try to find an excuse or another person who will justify us not wanting to love and pray for our enemies. Not showing the, the Christian, virtuous, ethical, morally beautiful heart attitude of humility. We look to other examples and we try to find a way around not only what here is the, the clear teaching of Jesus, but his example that he modeled for us that every disciple should be this way. But Jesus is our example. We may look to other lesser examples, but we must always return to Christ. And he asked in verse 12, and what a question this is, by the way. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, he returned to his place, and he asked them, do you understand what I have done for you? I think the subtle answer in the text is no. Not yet. They don't understand. But what a question. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me Lord and teacher, rightly so. So now that I, who, who are your Lord, I am your teacher. Now that I have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now are you beginning to understand? I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now some of you may have grown up in a denomination or Christian tradition where foot washing was actually one of, of your ordinances in church. Here in our church we, we say we have two ordinances, two symbols that we regularly practice as a part of worship. Baptism is one, the Lord's Supper is the other. But some will take that that idea of foot washing and make it an ordinance or maybe even call it a sacrament. And so the question is, is foot washing a sacrament or is it a spirit thing? Is it something that as the spirit leads us to do or that kind of, of, of radical act of humility and service that, that's a spirit-filled attitude of the believer or is it a sacrament, something we should practice all the time? I'm not going to solve that for us this morning. But I'll just tell you personally that there are two times in my life where I can remember that someone 
washed my feet as a Christian act of service and worship. And both times, I did not know it was going to happen. The first time was when I was a teenager, and it was our student minister. But he had not prepared us for the fact that a part of what we were going to do was have our feet washed. Had he prepared us, I might have found a reason to not be there. But it was an, a, an amazing, powerful, worshipful experience. And for someone who's not known to shed many tears, it was incredibly emotional and tearful for me. But the second time was even more memorable. I actually shared this story with you the very first Sunday that I was officially here as pastor. But that was a long time ago and you've probably forgotten. So I'll share it again. It had happened actually just a few weeks before I came here as pastor. We were in India. And we were walking along on very uncomfortable, ugly, gross, smelly, dirty roads. And we had been doing that particular evening house-to-house ministry. We were going from one place to another, and every home we would enter, whether they were Christian, Hindu, Muslim, whatever their background was, they all wanted us to pray for them. It was, it was an amazing experience. There was just something about it. And, and through our translators, we would say, We're going to pray in Jesus' name. And we literally went to hundreds of homes and nobody declined our offer to pray. But we were doing this, I'm talking for almost seven hours. We were exhausted. And our our hosts, though we weren't complaining out loud, they were picking up on it. We were walking slower. We were asking for more water breaks. And our feet were dying of pain. They didn't. We didn't realize they knew it. And so they told us, well, we're going to make a little side trip, which we assumed was another place to stop and have some tea or to have a little bit of a snack. And we we ended up coming to one of the believers' homes, and they had all these chairs set out in in front of the house. And they sat us down, and, and our brothers and sisters in Christ from the other side of the world who live every day in humility, who live every day in poverty, who are always surrounded by what we would consider to be squalor. They took off our shoes and our socks and they washed our feet. And I, that I was so overwhelmed with, with a, a feeling not only of Christ's love, but of, of Christian love in that moment. That, that it, I, I can still feel, I think the disciples would say the same thing, I can still feel that act of worship and love on my feet when I think about it. Our feet were in so much pain. They were so dirty. It was such an awful moment leading to that point where we were wondering how much longer can we go that it finally made sense to me just how much of an act of love and service foot washing really is. What our brothers and sisters in India did was exactly what Jesus said. I have set an example for you. I have modeled this for you so that you should do it for each other. Foot-washing is not the only act of humble service. Think about just in our own culture, in our own lives, the many people around us who every day do humble acts of service and nobody notices, nobody praises them, and we are just as guilty as anyone of, of not even noticing or appreciating. What about the people in our church or, or in our homes, in our schools, in our workplace, those people who wipe down the tables and sweep the floors and clean the toilets and change the diapers. These are acts of service to to us, to people 
to churches, to organizations, and their acts of service for the believer to the Lord. Whatever you do in everything, do it as if you are working for the Lord himself. And Jesus said in verse 17, the end of the, the text, now that you know these things, he'd asked them, do you understand what I've done? Probably not. So now that you know these things, you will be blessed if what? If you do them. If you put them into practice. The bottom line, everyone who follows Jesus is called to be a servant. Everyone. Jesus is our example. If we are a disciple, if we're a follower of Jesus, then we do as he does. We speak as he speaks. We learn to think as he taught us to think. And Peter, that wonderful follower of Jesus who often spoke quickly before he thought, finally got this picture as well. We see it in 1 Peter 2. I'm not going to read it, but just summarize what's there. Peter said, if you find yourself later on in a situation where you're persecuted or you suffer for righteousness, remember that even then, even in the face of your enemies, Christ has left you an example that you should follow in his steps. When he was insulted, he did not retaliate. He was without sin. When he was suffered, he made no threats in return. No deceit was found in his mouth. Instead, he willingly bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sins, live to righteousness, and be healed of our wounds by the good shepherd himself. Peter finally figured this out. The ultimate Christian example of love and service is Christ himself. And Peter said he has left us an example that we would follow in his steps. So as we close, we come back to John for just a moment. To finish out this thought just a little bit later in the chapter, John records these words of Jesus. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There are lots of, of ways that modern day Christians try to tell the world who they are and what they believe. But Jesus said very simply, just moments after modeling humility, service, and love by washing their feet, if you really want the world to know that you belong to me, that you are my disciples, they'll know it if you love one another. I think this first application here is to the church. We don't have to look far to see that even among Christians today, there's a lot of ugliness. There's a lot of hatefulness. There's a lot of name calling. There's a lot of division happening even in our own denomination right now over things that should never divide us. But Jesus said, again, modeling humility, which is more than a virtue, it is Christ like characteristic of a true disciple is that you will love one another and that's how people will know you belong to me I wonder what it would look like what the church would look like if every follower of Christ lived out the humility that he modeled I think it would look like a very different place
But there's also an application here for those who are not walking with Christ. There's that for the disciple, but then there's that for those who would say, I'm not walking with Christ right now. Maybe you never have. Maybe you need to hear this as a first-time invitation to be made clean. Where Jesus said, if I don't wash you clean, you have no part with me. Then maybe you need to hear that first-time call for Christ to make you clean. And who the Son makes clean is clean indeed forever and ever. Or maybe you would say, I'm just not clean right now. Jesus would say the same thing to you. When I make you clean, you are truly clean. So I want to invite you to, to bow your heads with me. And, and this last part, right before we move into our response, I'm going to pray in a little bit of a different way. I want you to join with me in this prayer. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but I want you to join with me in this simple prayer in your hearts. That these would not just be my words, but they would be the words of the Holy Spirit from Christ himself. And they would be the confession of each and every one of us together. Here's the prayer I want you to, to just join your heart with mine as I say it. Jesus Christ, cleanse our hearts. Cleanse your church. Make us disciples who love and serve in and through your name. Believing now that we know these things, we will be blessed if we do them. 